And welcome to uh, our continuation of our series, Let's Take Our Job Back. And this series kind of got spurred out of uh, questions and things that I was struggling with over the last couple years through COVID and then in having discussions with many of you and, and many others as well, I realized that I wasn't the only one that had these, these questions. And so I thought, hey, let's, you know, let's not beat around the bush. Let's just, let's address them head on. One of the things, one of the biggest questions that kind of spurred this whole series is, uh, did anyone else hear all of the end time rhetoric that was, that was going on like in the last two years? This is the end. This is the end. This is the, again, I'm hearing the same, this is the end. Do you know how many ends I've lived through? It's amazing. And I'm not that old. Like, it's crazy. Um, and or just live all these end time talks and, and that and here's here's the thing that out of that talk I've heard it multiple times and it's kind of like that old story of the boy who cried wolf you know that whole sto story it's it's just like you start to tune it out but then you at the same time you're going well one day it's gonna be right like and and how are we gonna know and when are we gonna know and and what really pushed me into a lot of the questions that we're dealing with in this series and a lot of the study that we're dealing with in this series is what pushed me into it was this whole idea of, of the end times and, and wanting to know how much of what I believe is based on tradition, that I, the traditions that I've been taught being raised in the church, all the things that I've heard, all the theories that I've heard, how much of that is theory, how much of that tradition, and how much is truth? And I wanted to know. I, I, I want to know. I think you want to know too. And I want to know. A part of that was I wanted to know what did the early church think and what did they believe and what did they practice through a whole lot more persecution and a lot worse things than the pandemic we've just been through. How did they not just survive, how did they thrive? I wanna know. And what is the role of the church and what is the role of, of us as Christians? And when do we stand up and when do we not? And you know, sometimes we're weird. Christians are weird sometimes. And I, I mean, some of the traditions we've had are just weird sometimes, and sometimes, like, let's just, let's not beat around the bush. And I want to know, because Jesus wasn't weird. His followers, eh. first followers, Peter was weird, right? But, I mean, what did they know? What did they believe? And I want to, I want to dive in and, and really answer some of these questions and look at this and go through, go through the scriptures and, and share with you some of the stuff that I've been learning and studying the early church and really pushing into some of this stuff. And one of the things that I discovered is that reading again about the end times and about heaven, I came across Revelation 21 and 22, last two chapters in the entire Bible. John, the disciple of Jesus, has a vision of heaven, and I was kind of surprised by the vision. I just never really saw it before in this light, but he has a vision of a city. That kind of caught my attention. Like, he had a vision of a city? Heaven's a city? I thought it was clouds and Philly cream chase, but I, I was like, it was a city. And then, it, then in particular, he said it was a city without a church. And I realized a city without a church, that's kind of odd for a Jewish guy to, to mention, but that's kind of odd for us as, as Christians go, like a city without a church. 
you know, because our perspective of eternity and what we believe about eternity determine our behavior here on earth. And I realized, I was like, if, if heaven is without a church, that maybe, maybe the church or the way that we see church and the activity of the church today, maybe our goal isn't to become little social clubs of escaping from how bad the big bad world is. Maybe we're supposed to become, maybe we're supposed to be in the city, redeeming cities to such a degree that when we get to the end, that the city doesn't need a, a, an escape planning or that that the city's been so redeemed because the church has done what it's supposed to do and and we're exploring that idea and then in exploring that idea I started seeing scriptures everywhere pointed including what has become probably it's going to become my life verse this is this is what I want this is what I want to be known for and I read this verse and I, I read it a couple of weeks ago but I want to read it again Isaiah 58 verse 12 it says this, some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities. Then you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. And this has become a life for me because this is, what I, this is what Kelly wants to be known for. I want to be known for, and I want Parallel Church to be known for, we're rebuilders of cities and we're restorers of homes. Wow. Not theoretically, Really, rebuilders of cities, restorers of homes. And we've been looking at a rebuilder of cities, restorer of homes in, in the book of Nehemiah, because an entire book in, in the Old Testament is on a rebuilder of a city, a restorer of homes. So I've been reading Nehemiah with this idea, and I've read it a hundred times the book of Nehemiah, it's a great, I've always read it as a leadership passage and, and I've, I've read it and I've read it and I've studied it and I've taught it as a leadership, you know, principles, but I've never seen it as a template for how to rebuild a city. Looking at it as a template for today's church of how we rebuild cities, I'm, I just, I can't get past some of the things that he did because here's the first thing. He, he gets, he realizes that his city is in ruins. Let's put it into today's context. Our country is in ruins. We don't need to debate that, right? And our world is messed up. And our world is in ruins. If you don't believe me, watch the news. For, like, don't, just, just. Our world is messed up. So, we, I mean, he acknowledges that it's messed up. But then what he does, this is what we learned in the series so far. In verse 6, he says, I and my father's house have sinned. He recognizes that his city is in ruins, and he doesn't blame the very king he worked for, who was responsible for destroying his city. The reason why his city's in ruins is because the king he works for destroyed his city. He doesn't blame him. He doesn't blame God. He takes personal responsibility. And what we learned, what we learned in this is that is that if we cast blame, we also cast responsibility. And responsibility is simply the ability to respond. Right? So if, if we want to be a rebuilder of cities and restorer of homes, the first thing we need to do is accept responsibility. Nehemiah accepted responsibility, which gave him then the ability to respond. The second thing that Nehemiah did is that he acknowledges what that sin is. And he says, we've missed the commandments. And he says this, He's quoting Moses. He says, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them. Of course, 
he's quoting Moses and, and the commandments he's talking about as, as far as the Israelites are, are and, and what they're doing. He's quoting, you know, Moses and saying the commandments being the Ten Commandments and all the rules for the nation of Israel. But we also know that Jesus gave us commandments as well as the church. He gave his disciples the commandments, which is Moses' commandments on steroids. And Jesus' commandment was love one another as, as Jesus loved. Okay, now that's serious. Love one another as Jesus loved. That's not just something we believe. That's something we do. Because believers don't change the world, doers do. And so in verse 9, when Nehemiah says, return to my commandments, and he doesn't say believe them, return to my commandments and do them. Do them. The next thing that Nehemiah does, and we looked at this last week, is, and I love how Nehemiah does this. Because here's what, through the, the progression, you can see the progression through this passage. He says, my city's in ruins. I'm taking responsibility. I have to do something about it. And then my next train of thought for me would be, my country's in ruins. Okay, I can take responsibility. I, I should be doing something. We've got to take our job back. I can get that. But then my next thing is, well, who am I? Our country's in ruins. Our city's in ruins. Who, who, who are we? Like, who am I? And Nehemiah could have thought the same thing. But then Nehemiah says this. You can almost hear this thinking going on in his head. The next verse, and we looked at this last week, he says, they are your servants, we are your servants, and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. And he's not, he's not reminding God who he is as a Jew, as God's chosen people. He's reminding himself, no, wait a second. I am part of God's chosen and we learned last week that, that God gave us identity as well. Paul, through, through the Apostle Paul, it says in 1 Corinthians that we are ambassadors of the King of Kings. Every single, those of you who are believers in Jesus, you are called ambassadors. Ambassadors are king appointed with responsibility to do the work of and to represent the king in a territory. We're on planet Earth, and our job, we have, you know, who's responsible? Who, what can I do? You're an ambassador who are supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We have something to do. Then look at this. We're going to get to the next verse. And I promise you, we'll, we'll get a little bit further than one verse this week. Verse 11. Nehemiah says, Please, Lord, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. And then he says this, and please make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now, this verse convicted me huge as I read it. And, and honestly, when I read Nehemiah as a leadership passage, I just thought chapter one was a setup. But there's so much more in chapter one, and this is one verse I couldn't get beyond without feeling convicted. And my conviction was this, is Nehemiah prayed so much differently than I would have prayed. See, the way that I pray is I can acknowledge our cities in ruins, I can acknowledge our countries in ruins, and I can acknowledge our world is in, in ruins, and I'm, and I'm like, God, you, I, this is my prayer, God, you know, do you know how messed up our country is? 
And he's like, and then I, my prayer is, would you do something about it? Could you do something about it? And Nehemiah didn't ask God. He recognizes cities in, in ruins. And Nehemiah doesn't ask God to do something about it. He doesn't ask God to intervene. And he doesn't even, this is what caught me, is he didn't pray for the king. And he didn't ask God to change the king's heart. Because the king could do something about it. He's the one who destroyed it. He's the one who has the resources to rebuild it. Nehemiah doesn't pray, God, change his heart, soften his heart, help change his mind so that he can rebuild my city. Because that's what I would have prayed. But Nehemiah doesn't pray that. This is, this is what caught me. This is what caught me. Nehemiah doesn't pray for the solution. He prays for the opportunity to be the solution. And I thought, wow, I need to change the way that I pray. And not just pray for the solution, but pray for the opportunity to be the solution. But then, okay, I can pray that. But then, who am I? Well, Nehemiah answers that too. You know what Nehemiah says? Nehemiah, the, the, the verse ends, the whole chapter ends this way. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. And it, it caught me curious because Nehemiah, when he acknowledges where he's at at the beginning of chapter one, he never gives his identity or what his job description was at the beginning of the chapter, he gives it at the end of the chapter. And I was like, why did he give it at the end of the chapter and not the beginning of the chapter? And I thought, Nehemiah wasn't using his limitations or his current responsibilities or his current job description or duties as an excuse as to why he couldn't be the solution. He acknowledged the city was in ruins. He, said, he took responsibility. He, he realized that he had to do something. And then, and then he, he gets to the place where he's like, I got to do something about it. And then he's, he's praying and saying, I, I'm, not, I'm praying for the opportunity to the, be the solution. And he's taking all this in account. And he goes, oh yeah, by the way, I'm a cupbearer. He didn't say, I'm the cupbearer, so who am I? What could I do? I'm a prisoner of war, which he was. He prays, he says, he acknowledges he's a cupbearer, he has limitations, and it's by acknowledging it at the end of the chapter, I'm almost looking at this and going, oh yeah, by the way, for all you rebuilders of cities and restorer of homes, you have no excuse as to why you too can't be a rebuilder of cities and restorer of homes, because I was just a cupbearer, I was a prisoner of war, and yet, here's my story. I was convicted by that, because I don't know how many times I've used the excuse of who am I in this nation? Who am I in this city? What could I, what could I do? I live in Lethbridge. I can stand against the wind, but what can I do <laughs> to change a nation? Anybody else thought that? 
Who am I? And here's what I realized, is I realized that me personally, I've created theologies of escapism. And what I mean by theology is that they become so entrenched into my belief system. And I realized I'm not the only one that I really think that the church, the Christian church, and I'm not making a judgment on you. I'm, I'm acknowledging that me having grown up in the church, I've got more theologies of escapism in me because of my traditions. If you're new to the church, God bless you. you God, can you like, if, but if you've been in church like me, we've created, as Christians, we've created theologies of escapism which we, we create belief systems of escape. Here's what I mean by that. Here's some sayings or things that we say that are actually escapes. None of these are bad. It's just I realize when I say these, I'm actually saying these as escapes or excuses as to why I can't, don't have to get involved. And I say things like this. It, it's just sin. It's just a sin problem. Anybody else? In other words, what I'm saying is our country is getting what it deserves because it's lost and it's sinful and we're getting what we deserve. It's a sin problem. But I realize that Jesus, even though his disciples had this same theology as, as I have, that it's just a sin problem. And an example of that is in John chapter 9. Jesus' disciples see a paralytic man and he, they can't bring him to Jesus to be healed. And the disciples saying, what, they asked Jesus this question, what sin did he commit that he got what he deserved? In other words, they looked at him being crippled and said he must have sinned so that he could deserve that punishment. And Jesus looked at them, and I can imagine the look Jesus gave them. He looked at them and he just looked at me going, guys, you way overestimate the power of sin. Sin's not the problem. Sin's not the issue. What's the, what's the issue is this is an opportunity for the Son of Man to be revealed. And he's looking at them and saying, the same anointing's in you. And he looks at them and he says, sin's not the issue. And he raises up the paralytic man and healed him right on the spot, saying, sin's not the problem. Sin's not the issue. I think we way overestimate sin. We make a bigger deal of it than he does. And we use it as they got what they deserved. So there's nothing we can do about it. It's a sin problem. And we escape. We feel guilt-free to back off. Another thing we say is, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. <laughs> Which, are, how, do we, how is that escapist theology? It's escapist theology because we, we think, we think all things are always good for those who love God. But that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says all things work together for good for those who love God. But, we don't, but it doesn't say that all things are always good to those who love God. So we think that if we're Christians, nothing bad's going to happen to good people. And when something bad happens to a Christian, we're going, well, there must be some sin. Or there's a lack of faith. Or they miss God. Or if it happens to us, we think, well, we miss God. Or even worse, we start to blame God and saying, you've abandoned me, you've left me, and our, our faith gets shattered because something bad happens. But listen, listen to me. This, I, I've been outspoken against this one forever and ever. It's the safe, safe and in God's will doesn't jive with the Bible. 
Because Jesus was in the center of God's will on his way to the cross, endured what he endured. Bad things happened to a perfect person. So we can't make excuses and escape. Another thing we say, I'm guilty of this one a lot, is what people really need is the gospel. And that's true, and that's good, and please hear me. I am not saying that Jesus is not the hope of the world. I'm saying Jesus is absolutely hope of the world, and people need the gospel. But listen, I've used this language as an escape, and here's, here's what I mean, is I've said things like what, what our nation really needs is salvation. And if we can just lead enough people to Jesus, then we won't have problems anymore. And that doesn't work because look at the church. Am I being too blunt? Because we got a whole room of saved people, but there's some messes here. Hello. And listen, I'm not, I'm not dismissing the power of the gospel, but I want you to see something. I want you to see something is that we use just salvation. I've used just salvation and just getting people saved as an escape for having to get my hands dirty and do the work. And what I realized for Nehemiah is Nehemiah didn't pray for Billy Graham to come to his city, Jerusalem, to get all the people who are in sin saved and then everything would be, they live happily ever after and the city would be rebuilt. Nehemiah got his hands dirty, rebuilt the city, and then, spoiler alert, at the end of the book, revival came and they got salvation. And then I realized... Jesus didn't preach the gospel and then heal the sick. He got his hands dirty. He fed the hungry. He, he, he prayed for the lame, the lepers. He got his hands dirty. He prayed for the sick. And then salvation came. And I realized we use, we'll just need the gospel. And, and we use an escape and we're going, well, here am I, Lord. Please send Billy Graham. And, that's, and then we say things like, well, that's not my gift, that's not my call, and I'm not in ministry, that's their job. And then we say things like, well, the church didn't do this. And I hear this all the time, the church didn't visit this person in the hospital, the church didn't do that, and I'm going, what do you, what do you mean? And what they're really saying, what they're really saying is the pastors didn't. Or the pastor didn't, and so therefore the church didn't. Hello, I'm not the church. Pastor Ralph's not the church. You're the church. Now watch, another thing we say is, we're just passing through, this world is not our home. Come on online, it got really quiet in this room. Put in the chat, amen, preaching good, pastor, like help me out. Got really quiet here. We say this, we're just passing through. The world is not our home. And there won't be peace until Jesus comes back. And it's all going to hell anyways. So who cares? It's an escape. <laughs> And the church is not the rescue and heaven's not the escape plan. And the earth, by the way, how messed up the earth is, it's darkness and light and darkness is the absence of light. And if the earth is messed up, it's because there's an absence of light and Jesus then called us the light. 
So therefore, we, we don't have any excuses there either. And, and we can't just throw up our hands and saying, well, this is not our home. Can I just hit really, I'll just get really blunt. As Christians, we were given dominion on this planet. And so if it's messed up, and I'm preaching to me as much as anybody, I've had this escape where this, this earth is going to hell anyway, and so I'm not an environmentalist, and I, don't, I could care less because it's just going to burn up, and it's just going to be gone anyway. Hello, wait a second, that's, that's, that's irresponsible on our behalf because we've been given dominion here. This is our territory on representative of the king. What state is he going to come back and find it in? Because he told us to steward this. Huh. And I'm not saying that we should get all weird and wacky with our environmentalism, but I'm just saying that we shouldn't just escape and, and use this as an excuse that we're just, just passing through. Online, it got really quiet in here. We also say things like, we're praying for you. And it's not wrong to pray. In fact, Nehemiah prayed. But when we use this, we're praying for you, and it's important to pray for somebody, but don't just pray for them if you can do something about it. If somebody's in a financial need, I'll pray for you. If you have the means to help, don't use I'll pray for you as an off the hook. I'm praying for Canada. Nehemiah didn't say, it's good to pray for Canada, please do. But ne that's not all we're supposed to do. Nehemiah didn't just say, I'm praying for you, Jerusalem. I heard you're in trouble. I'm praying for you and fell off the hook. In fact, he didn't pray for a solution at all. He prayed for the opportunity to be the solution. And John says this in 1 John. John, the disciple of Jesus, said this. He says, my dear children, let's not just talk. Church, let's not just talk about love. We got to practice it too. He didn't say stop talking about love. He just said, don't just talk. Let's not be just talk. We got to practice it too. Amen? So how do we avoid this escapism theology? Because anybody else want to be bold in, in the room, bold and saying, along with Pastor Kelly, I'm guilty of some of the... We've created this, this, this theology of escapism. How do we avoid it? Here's how. Here's how. Faith and wisdom. Because here's, here's the big question. A lot, of, a lot of people are asking me, like, okay, Pastor Kelly, you're getting, you're getting us all stirred up, and we got to do something about it. Okay, so how do we engage? How do we do something about it? What do we do? Like, do we get picket signs now and march downtown Lethbridge and saying you're going to hell uh, unless you repent? Like, what do we do? Let's go. No, please don't be weird. Because the church has got to rise up. And, and, and rising up means something just different to everybody, right? Isn't that right? The church has got to rise up. We've got to rise up. We've got to take a stand. Yes, but how? Using faith and wisdom. Okay, these are the power twins. Nehemiah had faith in God. His city was in ruins and he never blamed God. He still trusted God and God hadn't lost control and he still re-engaged God. He had faith in God. His faith in God did not waver. We see that. But Nehemiah also had wisdom and he prayed for wisdom. And notice that the wisdom he used, Nehemiah worked within the establishment. 
but he never used the establishment system. <laughs> you missed this one. Let me say that again. Nehemiah worked within the establishment of the king's authority and the king's reign, and even though it wasn't a godly kingdom, he worked within the establishment, but he never used the establishment system. See, the establishment systems would have been, Nehemiah was the cupbearer. He could have very easily assassinated the very king responsible for destroying his, he could have just poisoned the one. He, could, he was the one, last one to check it. He, he could have poisoned it. He could have easily, easily, easily killed the king and then tried to, take power and control, and that's right, he got what he deserved and justified all the rest of it, and then let's go back and rebuild Jerusalem, and he could establish a system, but he didn't. He worked within the established system, but he never used the establishment system. We get that? He used faith. He never wavered his faith with God, he, and, but he used wisdom as well. He also used love and impact. Love and impact. Here's, here's what I mean. Love prefers others over self. It always is about others' needs, not your own. So what I mean by that is we need to stand up for our rights, meaning I need to stand up for my right. But we're, we're not called to defend our rights. We're called to defend others. Love is always preferring others. And love isn't just talk, it's love and impact. So let me, let me show you how this works. Got this lovely dartboard up here. Is according to this, we have faith, we have wisdom. We have love and we have impact. Faith and wisdom. And if we have them in, in perfect balance, we would hit the bullseye. But here's, here's what's amazing, is that if we are slightly off, do you know what the term is in... in in archery is if you're off the bullseye, it's called sin. That's where the word comes from, is sin means off the mark, missing the mark. It's an archery turn, so watch. If I get too much love, talk with no impact, I'm off the mark. If I get too much faith with no wisdom, I'll get weird and I'll be off the mark. If I get too much wisdom without any faith, I can get too heady and know, all right? And if I get too much impact without love, I will pick it and I will stand and I'm gonna make a difference and I'm gonna make an impact, but then I do it without preferring somebody else. I'm missing the mark. And the way to stay in the bullseye is to balance love and impact faith and wisdom, and Jesus did it, this is how John, Jesus did it perfectly by balancing grace and truth. That's how we stay on target. Is this helping anybody? Now let's look at the results of this. Chapter two, look at this, I'll wrap it up with this. Because I, I, I can't help but show you what happened with this prayer, Nehemiah's amazing prayer, and how it happened. Look at this, look at this, look at the result. Verse one, chapter two, it says, and it came about in the month of Nisan, I didn't know the cars were in here either. <laughs> in the book of Acts, it says they were all in one accord, so Honda and Nissan are both. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was really bad. 
And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that, that wine was before him, and I took the wine and gave it to the king. And I love this. He says, and I had not been sad. I had not been sad in his presence. But then verse 2 says, so the king said to me, why are you so sad? He said, I had not been sad. Anybody ever try that? Come on, wives. Husband asks you, what's wrong? Nothing. What's wrong? I'm fine. And he's like, I can see it. It's like all over. Nehemiah, his life depended on him not being sad. And he's trying to put on his best face. But, but the king, they're in relationship, sees, he's like, why are you so sad? You know, he says, you're not sick. There's nothing but sadness of heart. Then it says this, I love this. Then I was very much afraid. And I love that because Nehemiah was human. He's in the midst of this, and we can, all, we can read Bible and we think superhuman. In the midst of all of this, Nehemiah is scared. And why is he scared? Because as a prisoner of war cupbearer, you don't get fired, you get beheaded. Like, if they're going to replace you, they take your head off. Right? So if the king is not pleased with you and you're sad in his presence, your job is, you know, the king's got pressure, your job is to lighten, you know, to, to be happy. And, and the fact that the king's pointing out, why are you, what's wrong with you? He's afraid because he's not just losing, he might not just lose his job, he might lose his head. This is, yeah. Pastor Ralph says that's real severance. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> Moving along. Verse three, then it says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. <laughs> that's wisdom. <laughs> let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad, which the city, the place my father's tombs lies desolate, and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then verse four, then the king said to me, what would you request? <laughs> this is good, right? This is good. King's, king's not taking his head off. He's asking, you know, pushing in deeper. What would you request? So look at this. He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Man, that hit me. He prayed to the God of heaven. And the reason why it hit me is because He'd been praying all of chapter one. He'd been praying and he prayed, finished chapter one by praying for an opportunity. But when the opportunity presented itself, he prayed again. Why do you pray again? Because there's a difference between God's purpose and directive and God's timing. And Nehemiah is praying again because he's going, I know this is the opportunity I was praying for, but God, is this the time? Is this the timing? Because you can get, you can have all the purposes and all line up and I'm guilty of, I, I see something all lining up and I'm running. I'm like, I'm gonna go. Instead of stopping in the midst of this and going, is, 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 this, is this the time? Is this it? Is this what I've been praying for? And I like that he prays again. Then he says this in verse five, and I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it, that I may rebuild it. This is a cupbearer. What does he know about building a city? Yet he says that I may rebuild it. Then he says this, then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will the journey be? And when we, when we return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time, wisdom. Hey king, I'm gonna come back. <laughs> And I'll give you the time frame of what it's going to take me to do that. Then, then verse 7. And I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me, the governors of the province uh, beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I came to Judah. Do you see how prepared Nehemiah is? 
He's, he's, he hasn't just prayed through this thing. He's strategized through this thing. So when the king asked him, he was ready. And he says, I've got, I need letters here. And then in verse eight, he says, and a letter to, to uh, Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me the timber I need to build the beams of the gates of the fortress, which, which is by the temple and the wall of the city and for the house which I will go. He's asking, he's planned this through. He's thought this through. He's using wisdom. You see, you see this? Like he's thought, he's, the opportunity came and he was prepared and he asked for the answer. Then look at this. Then verse 8 finishes like this. And the king granted them to me because I was so smart and I spoke so well and I was so wise and I had so much wisdom. Look at what he says. The king granted me this request because the good hand of my God was on me. And I thought, man, Nehemiah was afraid, so it proves he's human. But I looked at this, and I was like, this is not about Nehemiah. This is not about Nehemiah's purpose. This is not about him at all. This is about the kingdom. And he's an ambassador for the king. And he's realizing he's taking orders from a higher king than the small K king. And he's realizing that, that all the credit still belongs to the king of kings. It's our job to engage on his orders, but the results are up to him. A farmer can plant a seed can prepare the soil, can harvest that. But no matter how good a farmer is, a farmer cannot make a plant grow. That's God. And so when you reap a harvest, you give credit to where credit is due. The hand of the king was on me. Amen? So here's, 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 let me sum it up. We take responsibility. We're going to do things. We're not going to pray for a solution. We're going to pray for opportunities to be the solution. And then in the midst, when the opportunities come, we're going to ask for timing. Now, God, and we're going to keep a balance, always going to keep a balance between faith and wisdom, love and impact, grace and truth. And we're going to avoid... The, the theology of escapism. Because this is why. Here's today's takeaway. If we get too focused on escaping the world's problems, we will miss our purpose and our calling to solve them. If we get too focused on escaping the world's problems, whatever our excuse may be, we're going to miss our purpose and our calling to solve them. Can you imagine if Nehemiah would have prayed like I would have prayed? Can you imagine if he would have said, God, you fix it. God, you solve it. God, you send somebody else. Who am I? Can you imagine? He would have missed his purpose. He would have missed his calling. His destiny. Which, by the way, the entire book of Nehemiah, all of Nehemiah's life was 20 years we see him as a cupbearer of the king. All, the entire book of Nehemiah is, is a period of about 50 to 60 days. His calling, his purpose was 50 to 60 days of his life. And if he would have missed that, that destiny, 
had he not prayed to be the solution. And here's, here's what, this is why the, escape, the, the theology of escapism is so deadly to you and me today, is because we gotta kill that theology most of all. Because I think, and I think this is a prevalent theology throughout the entire church, and here's why I think it's prevalent throughout the entire church, is because too many of us in the church are questioning, what's my purpose? What's my calling? What, what am I called to do? What's my destiny? What's my purpose? And we're lost in this. And the reason why we're, we're searching for our purpose and our destiny is because we've been too busy running from the problems when we're supposed to be running to them. Because hidden in the problem is, is your calling, is your solution. Because I believe this to the core of my be being. I believe that you were made on purpose, for purpose, for such a time as this. And I believe... I believe that every purpose, every calling is a solution to a problem. And if you avoid problems, you'll never find your calling. So we don't run from the problems in our nation and escape with, well, I'm praying, I'm praying. We run too. And we pick up a shovel and a sword and we go to work and we rebuild cities and we restore homes amen let's pray god forgive us for how we've run from problems and and trying to escape the issues and hide from them lord i pray that you give us eyes to see like you see and ears to hear like you hear. And God, I pray that we'd specifically have ears to hear and eyes to see the opportunities to be the solution. Day by day, minute by minute, I pray we wouldn't miss when somebody asks for help, that we wouldn't escape from being the help, but we'd see the solutions. In Jesus' name. And then give us the wisdom to know what to do and the courage to be able to do it. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose again from the dead, you will be saved. So I want to run with you, uh, run through with you today a prayer that does exactly that. And it's not joining this church. It's not joining a religion. Uh, it's simply just a relationship with God. So if you'd like, you can close your eyes, bow your head, and repeat after me. So, dear Jesus, I confess that you are God, and I believe that you rose again from the dead. And I ask you now to become my Lord, to become my Savior, to become my friend. I thank you that my past is past, and that I can begin anew with you today. My heart is yours. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So guys, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, there's a link up in the chat that you can click on. Uh, congratulations, first off. That's an amazing, amazing decision. But second off, click that link, fill out that form. We'd love to get to know you, get to be a part of this amazing journey that you're starting on. And we'd love to help you out in any way that we can.